Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. There's something magical about islands to a paddler, and that's definitely true for Sean Pierce. For starters, Sean was the photo editor for Ireland's foremost paddling guidebook, Elon, which is Irish for island, so that should tell you something right there. And thanks, by the way, to Kevin O'Sullivan, not only for referring Sean, but for sending me a copy of Elon. As a self-confessed guidebook and map geek, it is truly a favorite in my library. So thank you, Kevin. Well, Sean is well-known in the Irish sea kayaking community, both for his involvement in the Irish Sea Kayaking Association, but even more so for his passionate pursuit of birding while visiting all those islands. And today we're going to talk with Sean about the island that is Ireland, but also many others, including a trip to the world's largest island. Before we get to our chat with Sean, Simon Osborne and James Stevenson keep making additions to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, most recently some interactive community features that are pretty cool. So if you're not already a subscriber, visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST, as in Paddling the Blue PTB Podcast, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off to up to 12 months of your subscription investment. You'll find a link in the show notes, so check it out. And enjoy today's episode with Sean Pierce. Hello, Sean. Welcome to Peddling the Blue. Hi, John. Um, hope you're reading me loud and clear from the west coast of Ireland. Absolutely. You have quite the resume as a paddler, and we will certainly talk about that. But one big difference from uh, yourself and many other guests is your keen interest in birding. So how did that start? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that question. And, um where the madness came from. I possibly influenced uh, in my early years by uh, both my dad and my granddad who basically kept cage birds and uh, had a big interest in fishing and you know the great outdoors as such and I just it's just an instinctive thing that started with me as a very young age and it's interesting how as I got more and more into sea kayaking how in a personal capacity it drives a lot of the trips I want to, to do. I want to uh, follow up on accounts know written in the 1800s or whatever else of people on various offshore islands off Ireland and other parts of Europe that I wanted to go and experience the thing myself and what better mode and medium of transport than a sea kayak. Uh, certainly certainly now you mentioned islands uh, I've been told that you've visited nearly every island off the Irish coast is that true? Not quite everyone that's an ongoing project yeah it's um there's been a great part of my sea kayaking career as such the um in the early in the early years when I started first, I would have got into sea kayaking in a serious way, I suppose, in the late nineteen nineties. No, it's not a little bit before that. Early nineteen late nineteen eighties. And as part and parcel of that, I came across a chap who um was originally from a climbing background and had had gone to um Spalbard, Spitsbergen, and had come across a bunch of French kayak, French kayakers there and said, I want a slice of that. So he came back home back to Ireland, found out who was who in the zoo, as we say, and <laughs> went kayaking and found that sort of, um, there was no guidebooks, there was no uh, information flow, and he, because he came from a climbing background and, you know, knowing routes and that type of thing, he decided to start an on, kind of an online guide to the islands of Ireland called Ilon, and I came across it, um, I, it was in the early days of the internet, and I dared to challenge him on a number of, um, let's say, environmental aspects of how were written at the time. So <laughs> then, what then ensued was a, a perfect friendship. And it, it grew and grew. We kept that in the islands of Ireland. And then, of course, it grew into a book and then a second publication. And that's it. and still a lot of my personal sea kayaking would be trying to go back to revisit some of these islands, which I haven't been back to in 20 years. And we've got over 700 out there. So uh, depending on what you call an island. All right. <laughs> So how how close would you say you are to completing them? Uh, I've still a hundred or two hundred to go yet. I think yes. As I say, we're still adding the odd small rocky hillock or whatever to it, you know. <laughs> and we haven't gone inland at all. So it's all been coastal stuff. So there's another lifetime's work in the islands on the lakes in Ireland. So a previous guest, Kevin O'Sullivan, um, he sent me a copy of. Um, I'm I'm going to try and pronounce it here, Elowen. Elowen, yeah. Elowen, yes. And it is a beautiful book. And it's, it's truly the Bible of paddling in Ireland, I understand. 
Yeah, the um, I'm not sure which. Have you got the original version or, or the one is the blue covered one? I presume you have. Is it the uh, um, the newer version, right? Yeah, yeah. The first one is a bit of a scream. It's got what we call in Ireland. A lot of things got past the uh, the editorial, <laughs> the, edit, the, edit, the editorial cutting, and um, there's some uh, some choice sort of phrasing in some of the descriptions of the islands. I was a little disappointed with the second um, volume because the quality of the photography that people sent in to me was superb compared to the first one, which was the changeover between 35 millimeter slides and digital. And the publisher was looking for huge um, megabytes of information. He wanted a really, you know, nearly 35 megabytes per slide or per photograph. It was the old fashioned publishing way. So in the newer one, I had five times the choice to, to send on to him. And because of the increase in the number of islands, the photography end of it was compromised, I thought, in the second edition compared to the first edition. But, you know, I suppose there might be a bit of nostalgia in that as well. <laughs> so you circumnavigated Ireland in 1999. So tell us what that experience was like. Yeah, it's like a rite of passage for kayakers, I think, in Ireland. When you get to a certain stage, you want to go out there and try it. And Ireland is sort of... It's just about doable if you're fit enough and your weather goes with you in and around the month in an enjoyable way. I mean, it's been done in fast, much faster than that by very hard-nosed crews and very, very good kayakers. But as um, other people have said to me, if you want to be somewhat sociable, you know, in and around the month is feasible for most people. And that's allowing for bad weather days. And just the variety, the sheer variety of the Irish coastline and... The fact that you it changes so fast from county to county and you've got different problems in different counties in terms of you know the, just the just the sheer physicality and the weather changes etc cetera, etc cetera. it's uh, and it's got all the wildlife interests that, that i that i need to keep me ticking over well tell us about some of that wildlife ireland as such because there's so much on the on the at uh, on the what they call it in not quite mid-Atlantic, but we're well off the, the, the European mainland. We're quite devoid of, uh, we're quite low in species numbers in many of the terrestrial birds, but our seabird life is particularly rich. And of course, we also tie in with great migration routes of shearwaters coming from the Southern Ocean. So our like breeding numbers of our own land shearwaters, puffins, guillemots, storm petrels, they, you know, they provide a, a real um, richness in, in Irish seawaters over those particular over the summer months when generally people would tackle a circumnavigation of Ireland. Now there's lots more, you know, there's terns, etc., etc. There's seals, and Ireland is uh, also now um, a sanctuary for whales and dolphins, and um, that's been particularly interesting to watch develop in the last twenty years, where the moratorium on the Celtic Sea off the south coast has brought back the herring, and with that. The big whales have arrived back now we've got good numbers of humpbacks and say whale on the, off the, off the um, south coast over the, over those months as well and into the winter mm, now do you see them quite often then uh you're lucky in a sea kayak as you know two foot above the water you'd have to be pretty close to get any kind of a view over the years i've been very lucky the southwest corner is probably the richest in terms of you're, you're not guaranteed but certainly from the point of view of dolphins and possible encounters that classic area between um the, the Blasket Islands and the Skelligs um, down along that coast is particularly rich and in the winter, more winter time along the south coast as the, uh, as the animals come to feed on the herring over the winter months. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, over the years, been very lucky. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, um, what, what's your, your, what are your favorite areas for birding up there? A lot of it depends on the, on the time of year, John. The, um, if we, we have this big changeover where the seabirds go south into the South Atlantic, so over the winter months. So over the winter months kayaking, it tends to be geese, ducks and waders. And one of my favourite areas in that time of the year is the English Key Islands off North Mayo. It's got a big wintering population of Greenland, or sorry, of, of um, barnacle geese and a few other species mixed in. And it's just a magical place, one of the classic views in Ireland. But I shouldn't be telling anybody about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's you know, one of my favourite places. Then the Kerry Islands, and obviously over the summer months, with the breeding um, seabirds, and um, they're very evocative at night when you hear the birds coming ashore and calling. It's um, it's one of those experiences, and a few other. There's other nuggets that I try to get people to. Um, again, Inish Glora off the North Mayo coast has got a beautiful storm petrel colony, and. And other ones I've failed to get to, uh, you know, that I still have to try and get to at the right time of the year. 
And then you've got other things happening like, um, you know, in spring, summer, you have the corn crakes, especially the, off the Donegal Islands. And corn crakes have decreased enormously in um, the British Isles, France, and even in, well into Europe now because of the changes in, in agriculture. But we've got a pocket there that is, that's still thriving and it's one of those classic summer sounds, you know. Are you seeing species return that haven't been there in, in a number of years? Well, the, yes and no. There's been changes, and I think one of the most interesting ones that I was involved with was off the Dublin coast on an island called Rockabill. The Rosé Tern colony there, it's been there since 1844, if not beyond. There's written records back to 1844 of the birds occurring there. And when I first got involved in the er, late 1980s, early 1990s, the population had plummeted. And all over Northwest Europe and even on the American East Coast and the Connecticut coast where they also breed. And that project has benefited from, you know, a really active conservation program and volunteers building nest boxes. And the numbers, I think at that time, when I went out there first, there would have been down to less than 100 pairs. And that was the only colony that was thriving at the time in Northwest Europe. It's now well over 2,000 breeding pairs, which is a great success story. And they've, but, Interestingly, they haven't pushed back in the numbers out to the other previous colonies over in Northwest Europe. They're very much, uh, they like, they like Rockabill and they stay there, which is kind of, you know, from a scientific point of view, all your eggs are in one basket type of thing. <laughs> so the potential for a disaster is, is high, you know. So going back to the, uh, the circumnavigation, what would you say would be different about that trip if you were to do it again today versus what is now 23 years previous yeah um i don't know how much bottle i have left john to take on some of the stuff where <laughs> I, I got i had a few um a few hairy moments as they say uh, coming up along the west coast of ireland yeah i'd probably take it um a little bit more slowly and um just enjoy it more you know and i i, I and you sort of i suppose as you age you just pick out the nuggets where you want to stay and you know stay a few days there's no rush you know so that would be the big difference i think Talking to people who've done it over the years, it's, um, you know, unless you're out to set a record, one of the sort of the nice aspects of, of, of kayaking the Irish coast is that th the people you encounter or the people you force yourself to encounter often makes it far, you know, very, very memorable. People have, have, are always concerned that you're out there. You come in and you look for water, it ends up being a cup of tea or you end up going to, to a pub for music or whatever else. And a lot of that adds a huge richness to, um, to a circumnavigation where it's not just the coast if you know what i mean there's a the social aspect of it and the music and the dancing you know it makes a complete holiday i've had the chance to talk to a few folks who've uh who've circumnavigated ireland and uh, they've they've all said the same thing it's the people that make the difference yeah yeah and you know the the record guys are i, I take my hat off to those guys how they can push along and uh, and do get those jobs done but i think you know that I suppose it depends on your goals, but the the social aspect is is very rich, and you know anybody thinking about a trip like that should take the time if you know what I mean and yeah. enjoy it. Now, would you say um, technology or anything has changed the trip if it was between twenty three years ago and and today? Ah, yeah, communications are are much much better. But curiously, uh, the old. Um, at the time, VHF radios, I mean, obviously, we were I was using those for emergencies, but the old phone was working better at sea than it worked on land because of the interconnectivity of the various, uh, what would you call it, um, signal towers at the time or relay stations. And it was quite fun to, you know, you'd land in a place and you just, you'd have to try and climb a hill to get some sort of a signal and, or else paddle back out to sea and get a better signal. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's changed enormously. And... <laughs> The, uh, that was quite a bit of fun. But you're never that far. Uh, Ireland is a kind of a, it's a, it's a very social, well, but not social is not the right word, but it's, um, you're never that far from anywhere really, you know, in terms of the, the exposure factors are there. But the big crossings, I think the single biggest crossing is Donegal Bay. And if you do that direct, it's a, it's a 40 mile crossing. You know, that for some sea kayakers is, is not a lot, especially if they train for it, you know. So I don't know if I've answered your question or not there. Yeah. I'm meandering a little bit. So. <laughs> you mentioned some hairy times um, along the way. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, um, I got quite a, a, a baptism of fire when 
it's, things were fairly smooth till we got to um i got down to sorry um mizzen head and we had a big southeasterly blow and um, to get around the mizzen as is often the case it's the subsidiary headland gives you a beating rather than the main headland itself and that was one of those dark oh very dark gray big rolling big rolling breaking seas day that just put manners on me and then i got quite a thumping um off the north Kerry, off the Kerry coast and lost a bit of time on the Kerry coast trying to get around um Sibyl Head and just north of the Blaskets there a big season I was very glad one of the days I was out that a lot of the guys were fishing for salmon and there was these little boats bobbing along off the coast and they were radiating ahead there's some madman out here <laughs> heading, heading north so I'd go from one boat to the next and uh, just big Atlantic conditions and it's like anything else when you're when you're solo everything is amplified you know but I was quite, I came away from the County Clare Coast with a healthy respect for the exposure factor of the Clare Coast. Even though it's sort of midway up Ireland, it gets a, quite a beating from the southwest, northwest, westerly winds. So it's rarely, you rarely get a quiet day there. So they were the big moments. The southwest corner, especially, and then the Clare Coast would, would have been my big thumpings. <laughs> were there a number of areas where you were. Um, exposed to the point where you had no landings um i had difficulty getting off um some areas uh, i remember in terms of the size of the surf um would have trapped me in liscanner and county clare for a few days similarly off the donegal coast at a uh, underneath horn head i was trapped for three days there with the size of the surf and got quite a and even the day i picked to go to sea it was a case of uh, go in roll let the bottom of the kayak take the thump and roll back up and the amount of equipment I lost off the deck that, that day was amazing, just stripped off it by the size of the surf. So, you know, yeah, in terms of, I didn't have any great difficulty getting into places. Yeah, I had um, I'd no real difficult landings as such. It was the, the departure days. Now, you mentioned you were solo. Um, were you also unsupported? Yeah, well, I, well, I was only solo for, for the West Coast. I, I, okay. I went with a good, a good buddy of mine from, we started in Scaries on the East Coast. And Des, Des Keeney, who uh, had a company called um, Deep Blue in South Dublin, he, Des came as far as Dingle with me. Mm. And then I did the West Coast solo and uh, round to the north. And Des, I actually didn't, I didn't complete it in 1998. I, um, I ran out of time, had to go back to work in late August. And I then did a, it was curious, I went back in April 1999 and it was a very early uh, Easter Easter holidays I was, I was a school teacher by profession and it was one of those sharp high pressure very cold weeks but um, reasonably settled weather and I did the Donegal coast last week and really came away hugely impressed with the Donegal coast which to my mind is kind of Ireland in miniature it's, it changes so fast and from big headlands to big beaches to islands it's just a marvelous coastline and rounded Malin Head and then I managed to convince Des in June of that 1999 to complete the circuit with me and he came back and we did from uh, Malinhead back down to Skerries and it was great to get him back on the water. Yeah, so it was, it, it was like three trips and one of the, the April trip in 99 was like a winter trip, you know, nights were long, days were cold and hard frosts and nobody on the sea. It was, uh, quite a different experience to the, the June dates. We would have left Skerries on Independence Day, July the 4th. Okay. <laughs> so yeah so it was quite a three trips in one and um, consequently all the richer for it you know I'm the, I, I bet so if you were guiding a capable group um, in Ireland and you can only visit one area what would that be oh it's always an impossible question oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, god visually I suppose it's desperately hard to beat the, the Skelligs of the Blasicus area of uh, County Kerry Ackle and North Mayo run a very close second, and then you have the Donegal Islands as a very, very close third or 2.5, I'd say. So there's, they're the three kind of nuggets that I always love going back to. Um, so I haven't answered your question. I've given you three options. <laughs> 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 and they, oh, sorry, John, this, but you know, there'd be numerous other smaller objectives that add other things to which a group trip in a day, you know, I mean, in terms of sometimes the emphasis would be on the natural history sometimes on the sheer visual scenery and size of the Atlantic Sea. No, we wouldn't be going to sea, obviously, in big seas, but, and then you have, depending on the time of the year, some of the aspects might be wildlife driven, more so. For example, at the Great Salty off the Wexford coast is always a lovely day trip. At the right time of the year, in May, June, it's just stuffed with seabird life. And 
you know, so there's all types of little nuggets like that that are built into, let's say, my kayaking year. So you mentioned uh, the history, and I understand that the, the Blaskets and the Skelligs are, are quite rich in history. Uh, tell us about some of that. Yeah, it's um, the Great Blasket in particular is um, the, the people, they have the literary tradition there, and it was, it was obviously an Irish-speaking area before it was evacuated, finally. The, a lot of the islands suffered badly in terms of the independence of the state and the new, the new state coming the Irish Free State being formed in, in the early 20s, 30s, a lot of the islands were being depopulated rapidly at that stage. And a lot of the, the government infrastructure and the money wasn't there in a lot of cases, a willingness to actually build the piers and improve the facilities to try and keep a lot of the islanders on the islands. And, you know, when you look at some of the Irish islands nowadays, they're not remote, you know, compared to some Scottish and Scandinavian islands um, in terms of the distances offshore. And that was a bit of a tragedy of, or a consequence of the independence of, of Ireland. But the history of the Great Blasket and th that it produced so many writers um, is quite exceptional. Even the, a lot of the accounts of Irish islands are often written by the in English um, people who've come to Ireland you know, um, over the course of our history and would have been in, I suppose, positions of relative affluence compared to a lot of the Irish um, people at the time. They had the time and the money and I suppose to go to and visit some of the islands and would have written a lot about it, the Irish islands. But to have something coming from the natives themselves, encouraged by visitors there has been fantastic. It's very rich, the Great Blasket. There are other parts of Ireland that have the same, but wouldn't be at the same depth. I've had the, uh, had the chance to see the Blaskets from, uh, from Dingle, from the Dingle Peninsula. And uh, just you know, seeing them off in the distance, it's just that mysterious-looking islands. You wonder what's there. Yeah, not the easiest islands to sort of uh, to explore because all the landings are relatively or can be very difficult, and the launching points are quite difficult. So it's always a, a challenging uh, trip to try and um, organize weather-wise, because <laughs> the beaches surf. As I say, it, they're tough landings. And the exposure factor is, is immediate as soon as you leave the beaches on the, on the, on the Kerry coastline. But the magic of them, it's just, it's, it's very hard to beat, you know. So you've paddled Arctic Norway, Arctic Russia, Iceland, Kamchatka, uh, probably pronounce this uh, incorrectly, Sakhalin? Sakhalin, yeah. Sakhalin, yeah. all right. Greenland and South Georgia Islands. So let's talk about some of those. Let's start with <laughs> Kamchatka and, and Sakhalin. Yeah, very, very fortunate to, to have been. In, I've been in Russia three times on, on kayaking trips through a, a, a friend that lives in Germany. And that was um, the White Sea trip is probably the most memorable culturally because of um, a lot of things. We were based sort of in the St. Petersburg and saw a lot and then went up to the, the White Sea coast. And it, it was quite an amazing journey in, not a difficult journey, but quite an amazing journey in terms of the, the amount of Russian culture we got to see and experience. The Kamchatka coast, full on Pacific, didn't get terribly far, got a good thumping by the weather and the size of the, the, uh, <laughs> the size of the surf beaches there. Amazingly, you know, one of my sort of hidden objectives was I have to see a bear, you know, I have to <laughs> see a bear. We saw, we saw no bears and no orca, even though everybody else on this, um, that we met, met saw them. And um, I, so we, unfortunately, we had quite bad weather on very, very, um, not bad weather, but a lot of, um, a lot of precipitation and a lot of fog. And we didn't quite see what we went there to see, but, you know, hugely uh, enjoyable and the cultural experience again of um, going going to Russia, very different to the to Ireland. Sakhalin was true, and another friend, that, that same friend, joined us in Kamchatka because we had to have a native Russian with us, and he came up from Sakhalin at the time. And um, Greg and Greg was I, I heard this all American voice downstairs in the hostel, and I thought didn't know there was any Americans here, and came downstairs, and then there was no American. <laughs> there were two guys talking ru in Russian and then I came in the door and suddenly Greg talked again and he had this really heavy um, what do you call it he could have been from he could have been a Houston oiler <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't quite know what the connection was but, if, but he, he was um, he had in his had been sent to uh, Texas as a, a teenager and learned his English in Texas and um, 
I think worked for um, one of the companies there for a while before he went back to Sackland as something based in the oil industry. And that's why we went to Sackland was because Greg was, was, was from that island and we went back and visited it there and went down, to, down around the southern end of it, down around the southern coast. Didn't have the time to do a full circumnavigation there. It's just such a big place. But got to see that Japanese influence um, towards the southern end of the island, which is quite interesting. Some of the lighthouse buildings were very distinctively not Russian, <laughs> very, very Japanese in, in design, which it, it was part of Japan at, I think, in the 30s. And then Russia took it back after World War Two. So these two, uh, so Kamchatka and, and Sakhalin, they're on the far eastern or southeastern edge of Russia, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And Sakhalin, uh, there's a bottom of the peninsula, almost reaches to what is now Japan. You're nearly in Japanese waters, yeah. Um, you know, we were tempted <laughs> to dash across, but uh, just just didn't happen. So quite different, you know, uh, Kamchatka will be a lot more northern and, um, you know, a lot more towards. I suppose the uh, you're not quite in tundra regions, but you're getting there. You know, hugely interesting from one perspective again on the natural history side of things. You know, the, that run of salmon that you see on the North American uh, natural history programs occurs on the Russian side as well, and you know, there's, it's a huge industry on the Russian side. Hence the bear numbers and hence everything else. But, but some of the sea eagles which I went to see were were superb things. You know, the uh, stellar sea eagles are a very impressive bird. And we were lucky enough to meet the Russian equivalent of the Irish whale and dolphin group who had set up a, a, a temporary camp um, down along the, the, the peninsulas south of uh, Petropavlovsk. I'm trying to get the name of the, the main town that's gone out of my head at the moment. In, this is in Kanchakia. And they were great fun. We, we came in, we were stuck there a day and a half weather-wise, and we just, they had a big sort of tent set up and we were able to go up and sing a few songs. And, the girl in charge actually had been in Ireland four or five times. She knew Ireland better than I did in terms of <laughs> whales, whales and dolphins. It's, it's a small world when you get it <laughs> sometimes, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, some great memories um, from that part of the world and amazing kayaking. So I understand that Kamchatka is um, terrain-like, very much like Alaska. Correct, yeah. It's on that Pacific, the Pacific chain of fire in the volcanic uh, region as well, yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've never been to Alaska, but it, I think it's very, very similar from photographs and documentaries that I've seen. You know, okay. The, and I, I had this sort of, there was, there was a series on um, a terrestrial TV over here many years ago that kind of set a seed for, well, that Kamchatka trip came out of the white, white sea trip, and that was a case of what else do you want to see? And I wanted to see the Russian bear. And that, to kind of go back to the point about that TV program, I think it was called the land of the Russian bear, but I was blown away by the physical landscape, which is so beautiful, which we didn't see really. But, <laughs> you, <know. laughs> you go on holidays, you take your chances. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that uh, I, I've referred to myself as moose repellent and bear repellent uh, before, because it seems like when I go to, uh, when I've gone to places that uh, supposedly have either, I never see either one of them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think what, what, you know, you sort of expect, you know, the way I suppose, when you see things on documentaries, it's um, you, you expect to see them when you go there. But of course, the landscape is so big when you arrive in these places that you know the wildlife is spread out over a vast area. You know, yeah. Um, and that's kind of what occurred. That was similar in Greenland. I was, I was a little disappointed in terms of uh, that was another superb trip, but the wildlife aspect was hard to get to see because the size of the landscape is so big. Everything is very dispersed. No, you don't, you don't get those classic little nuggets of, of concentrations, you know. Everything is over on a big, wide scale. But they were, yeah, the Greenland trip was with a bunch of friends. We went through Iceland and just staged in Iceland and went across. And, you know, to be helicoptered in was just a, a new experience for me, to be helicoptered out. And we went out to the Nordic, and the, the objective was to try and circumnavigate the islands and around Cape Farewell and back in and it's a lovely beautiful area of um, islands that you can kind of hide from weather and that beautiful um, combination of glaciers high mountains and beautiful craggy islands you know just amazing that was another amazing trip and on a latitude that's quite similar to ireland at cape farewell that area of greenland is and quite green 
one of the lads, Dave Walsh, who I've mentioned already regarding Elon, Dave was on that trip, but he also been in Greenland, I think in the 70s, on a climbing expedition in the same area. And he was just stunned by the uh, how much the glaciers had retreated in the, in the time interval. We would have been there 2004, so there would have been maybe a 15, 20 year gap between his two trips. Um, so, yeah, global warming. Yeah, it's a real thing. A uh, real thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, how long were you in Greenland? We were there for two and a half weeks, I think. Yeah, about two and a half weeks, yes. And some of that was traveling in and traveling out. But uh, we were certainly two weeks. And literally, once we left the town, we saw nobody. Well, bar the odd fisherman. You're very much on your own with your supplies, you know. Lovely trip. We got we got pretty good weather, actually, on that trip. We had, we had a few days where we um, had to hide at the islands kind of thing. But we got pretty good weather, by and large. What would you say the highlights were of that trip? Yeah, the, uh, the highlights would have been obviously crossing, you know, cr crossing the, the 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 Greenland ice cap by helicopter to go south. Um, we, I think there was a it was a big American uh, base we flew into, an ex-American army base that we flew into from Iceland, and then we staged again and had to change, put all the gear into a, a big Sikorsky and went south to the North Lake and crossed over the the Greenland ice cap to see that live for the first time was a big highlight. Um, then the Things like uh, the people, Dave and another chap who had been in Greenland, Tom, Tom had been in Greenland as well, but he'd on the west coast. And he said one of the one of the nice things that he remembered was a chap who was on that trip with him had brought photographs back that he'd taken there of the 1950s, I think, mm. and hadn't been back until you know, into the 70s. And it was a real point of contact between themselves and and the Inuit, the Inuit were delighted. You know, it was a real sort of breakthrough in terms of communications. And they were, and that happened exactly on our trip as well. David taking photographs of people in the two villages that he'd been in in the 1970s and 80s. And once we showed him the photographs, it was a whole new world opened up. We were invited in for tea and had to chat, you know. And some of them had some English. And um, it was, uh, that was a nice touch. And that would have been a real highlight, just meeting, because apart from that, we saw nobody else, you know. Although the kids were great. I mean, you'd land with the kayaks and they were like, they were straight into the boats. You could see that they grow up with these things and they were investigating stuff and you know, jumping in and out of the boats <laughs> and uh, picking through all the kit and emptying all the kit and just the curiosity level was fantastic. That was a big highlight. The wildlife end of it, I saw a few nice things, um, Arctic foxes and some of the seal species one or two whales, um, but the landscape it, it was stunning. So how does one even go about organizing, this is a question I've always been curious about, what, how does one even go about organizing a trip where you have to, to fly into a, an air base, an American air base, and then find a Sikorsky helicopter and fly yourself somewhere else? How, does, how do you even manage the logistics of something like that? Yeah, a lot of advanced planning and, you know, um, obviously the internet is a huge tool nowadays, so you just, and, you know, you, you, word of mouth as well, because Dave had done that trip before, he knew the sort of the general way it would run, and it was a case that I just, you know, booking in advance things, booking things ahead, turning up a guy that would lease your kayaks. Leasing kayaks anywhere in the world is always problematic, because you never quite know what you're going to get till you sit in the boats, and that's been one of the features over the over the years that you know i know i always bring my own paddle i always bring an extra spray deck because they're the two items often that are, are, are poor quality sometimes not always but it, they can be and you can be end up in a trouble where you're in difficult waters and you're you haven't got that paddle that you want you know so yeah just internet planning largely john uh, and a little bit of the advantage of sometimes somebody else having been there previously you know just knows how the how to work it you know so were you able to find quality boats uh, there as well as Sakhalin? Yeah, we did. We did okay. Yeah, they, the boats were fine, and they they they, they could. They, you know, one of the things on trips like that is that you're you're sort of worried about the volume and capacity that you can carry. So there were yeah, there were good big volume boats, and they could handle the ice well. They were strong, strongly built. We did have one or two issues, but you know you always have issues. Nothing major. So going back to Sakhalin, um, how was that different from Kamchatka? A hugely different landscape. It's a lot, a lot more low lying. It didn't have that same remote feeling that that Kamchatka gave you when you once you went out the bay in Kamchatka. You felt you were in semi wilderness as such. Uh, in 
cycling a lot more um the coast that we that we kayaked had an awful lot of salmon farm not farming but um there was there were act, every beach had nets running off the beaches mm. there was you know boats there was people it was quite a heavily heavily worked the coast so it didn't quite feel that you were as remote as Kamchatka it was more low lying as I say a lot more surf beaches less craggy coastlines it's very oil rich Sakhalin it's one of the uh, so a lot of the um, beaches they were black quite unusual you know in terms of uh, the colours for, for beaches uh, whatever the the shale and the mudstones and whatever to contain the oils are very much on the beaches as well. So, but the vegetation then was nearly what I would call you were getting into not subtropical, but you were sort of to get into much softer lines of vegetation compared to the Kamchatka coast. So quite varied in that regard. Bird species were different as well. And we were there in August. So we were getting the start of the, the whole um, migration period of uh, birds bailing out of the Arctic and seabirds starting to head down the coast. Shearwaters coming up from the South Atlantic. It was a nice mix of um, uh, natural history experiences. Whereas the the Kamchatka wildlife aspects were the breeding seabirds. We were there in June, so the the small islets offshore were packed with exotic species for me, like big tufted puffins and horned puffins, which don't occur in the Atlantic. And you know everything was kind of new and um, very interesting in that regard. You know. Was the wildlife your primary motivation for those, or was there something different? Um, for both trips, yes. Um, no, not no. It was uh, that sense of let's go. You know, we, because of the inside contact again in through Greg, who I mentioned in Sackler, we wanted to go visit him, but we wanted to kayak in his area, and we wanted to see it and explore the coast as well. But the wildlife aspect for me is always an extra bonus. That there's always something that, you know, will will increase or at least add to my reason for going there. <laughs> on top of the the, uh, the sheer kayaking end of it, you know. Now, in terms of uh, culture, were you able to immerse yourself more in the culture in Sakhalin? Yeah, because we had, again, the local contact, you know, uh, it's just, in, it, that's, in Sakhalin, the, the, it, it was quite an international feel to it, it compared to Kamchatka. As I said, Sakhalin is quite, it's quite a, the oil centre, um, and there's active sort of, um, there's an international community there from all over the world. So in, in terms of the dynamics of how the town worked, you could see the international influence far more there than in Kamchatka, where it was, you know, very Russian, very Russian and very different. Now, speaking of very different, um, your most recent expedition was South Georgia Island. Correct, yes, yeah, yeah. So let's hear about that one. Yeah, that was, um, well, chance of a lifetime. And uh, for anybody who listens to this, <laughs> that's, if you get a chance, you know, if you get that phone call, just go. <laughs> Don't hesitate. You'll find the money. Just go for it. <laughs> this came out of, um, this was through uh, a friend of ours that we know through kayaking in Ireland had, had been lucky enough to be in, a, in Antarctica two years previous to, we went in 2019 uh, to South Georgia and he had been on a similar type of um, trip in that he went as part of a sea kayaking group organized by Justine Quivergan um, to go to Antarctica and kayak in Antarctica. And uh, I think they went from Ushua in, in, in um, South America. And the skipper on that ship, or who, a skipper on that yacht, uh, they went on a yacht, turned out to be an Argentinian man who, um, a loanman, who was our contact back in Ireland, got to know quite well over the course of the trip. And they dreamed up this trip together, I think. Well, certainly Lonan popped the question at him and uh, wondered because um, this Argentinian man, Zach, was going to get hold of a yacht and get into that business himself. Zach had a big, had a big outdoor resume. He, he worked in um, the mountains in Tierra del Fuego and as a mountain guide and a very experienced guy sailing. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the seed was planted and we flew to the Falkland Islands, met Zach with the kayaks and the yacht and the Falklands sailed to South Georgia and within that there was a story of a lifetime. <laughs> I could I could talk all night about that particular sailing trip and the kayaking. So as I say, where will I go on this one? Pop me a question is because <laughs> there's so much there's so much in that trip alone. Well let's start in, with that sailing trip. Yeah, we um I was personally sort of I'm not a sailor and I've never really done any offshore sailing. 
And my biggest worry uh, going on that trip was that I'd be seasick for, the, for that passage. I'd read volumes and volumes of everybody's account of doing similar type of trips. And uh, I, I knew the South Atlantic's reputation in terms of a, a pretty, pretty heavy seas and big storms. And it, it duly obliged. <laughs> we, were nine, we, we were nine days, pa we, we had a nine day passage to um, Gritvik in, in, on the north side of uh, South Georgia. You have to, um, there was a whole, the planning end of this, um, John, you know, was, was enormous in terms of, uh, we had to do environmental reviews, we had to uh, get a license, we had to go through all kinds of hoops between the Falklands government and the South, well, the South Georgia and the Falklands government are tied in and your application was vetted by outdoor adventurers who have done this trip before. Like just as an aside, I know South Georgia has been circumnavigated at least twice by two different crews. The um, now we had no ambitions to do that. We were just going to uh, cherry pick to some extent, and uh, the British crew and uh, a New Zealand crew, I think, have circumnavigated, which is a huge achievement in you know uh, in the exposure factors and what they managed to do. And I forget what years that was done, um, but it's it was probably a good, I'd say, ten years ahead of our trip, maybe a bit less. But yeah, the South Atlantic, Julia, guys, three or four, we got beautiful three or four days. Uh, first few days out of the, the Falklands were super. And I was up, up on deck doing my thing in terms of the seabird life was just fantastic. You know, my first albatrosses, Southern Ocean petrels, all that type of stuff. I mean, the others were looking at me and said, he's just daft as a brush, this fella. He was up on deck the whole time, you know. But that richness was just amazing. You know, first penguins and all that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, for me, it was one of those voyages that combined everything I'd ever read about and then everything that ever happened on a previous voyage seemed to happen on our voyage. <laughs> so we had things like we were knocked down a number of times, we had some very heavy weather, we were delayed, there was various incidents happened that, but it, we got to, to uh, Gritviken and that in hindsight was a, a bit of a problem in terms of um, if anybody was organising this trip again, take a longer period of time if you were ever doing this because uh, getting there is, is long distance stuff. When you're there, it's a big enough island if you're trying to explore where we wanted to explore and the distances are bigger than you think. So our time frame is a bit too short or we were a bit over ambitious in what we wanted to try and do. But what was it? The, the payback was just, it was Antarctica, it was Greenland, it was Iceland, all in one island. And you know the, and the wildlife end of it was just amazing. The, uh, the penguin colonies, the the seal colonies, uh, the you know the seabird life, which uh, albatross life, an experience that um, certainly in terms of one of uh, one of my uh, big life experiences was this trip. You know, they, the highlights would have been sitting in the penguin colonies, I think, in a place called the Salisbury Plain in Saint Andrews Bay, and being able to visit. Of course, the whole Shackleton Irish connection was another big driver for us wanting to go there. You know, the um, following in the steps of you know, Crean, Shackleton, and being able to, to, to see what they achieved on that island for us was just, just blew, it blew us away, you know. Uh, how long were you there? On the island itself, or in the sort of, in that waters, we were, we were less than a week, because we had to then, we had a nine day passage back where the Southern Atlantic gave us another good thumping. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the girls, Margaret, on the first thumping and knockdown, she broke her wrist, unfortunately. Her trip kayaking wise was was ruined unfortunately, but she we made a decision or she made a decision very brave that she continue with us, get to South Georgia and we actually got her kayak and put her on her toe at one stage. We did fairly protected kayaking. We didn't get we were able to cherry pick what the places that we wanted to see, but had that marvelous experience that others I had had it before in Greenland, but others hadn't had it kayaking in, in amongst the icebergs and you know the. Um, Oh, there was so much in that trip that were firsts that um, uh, people kind of, um, you could see everybody just enjoying it at different levels, you know. The yeah. crew that travelled, fantastic. I travelled again with that crew anywhere. They, they really gelled very well, the whole group. And uh, there were seven of us. And just two, and, uh, and Zach and his son Santi were the crew. They, they, they drove, the, they drove the, the yacht. We had lots of incidents on our trip in, in terms of yacht problems, etc., etc. And I think the skipper, I remember him saying he wouldn't do that trip again. I think the exposure factor is too big. Perhaps time versus money versus whatever else as well, that he'd go probably to Antarctica faster and he would go to um, back to South Georgia, you know. Mm. 
Yeah, um, and he's a very experienced sailor. Now, did the boat stay with you while you were there? Yeah, and that's kind of what, what we had plans to camp and try and, you know, loop, do loops and go back to the yacht maybe every two or three days. The fur seals, <laughs> our first encounter with fur seals told us, no, lads, you're not camping. <laughs> so we hit it in peak season uh, when there was four million of these guys and they literally were absolutely everywhere, John. You couldn't, you couldn't put a tent down, but there was a, a big male seal coming at you. Um, they're highly aggressive and... We had to make a, a difficult decision. We brought all the, you know, we wanted to camp, we wanted an expedition as much as we possibly could. But you kind of say, the penguins and the, um, you know, the, the different uh, seal species, like it's it's their place. Yeah. You know, and we, we felt like we were intruding a little bit. And certainly to go in, you, you to protect yourself, you come ashore and you have to sort of, what they call bodgering, you, you sort of either have a, a long, um, walking pole or a, a long piece of timber just to keep the animals at bay you know you just you just you don't hit them you just point a stick at them and try and keep them at arm's length but trying to put a tent up in amongst that i just thought you know no that's an intrusion we shouldn't be doing that and to come as it was a group decision that we didn't do that so we did a series of day trips long day trips where we took up with the uh, the yacht at night um which worked out quite well must be amazing to be in a place that uh there's so much wildlife that you can't even land for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'd never seen that density before. You know, you'd, well, you'd, except on sort of TV documentaries, and you don't quite believe it because until you're there and you have all the aspects, the smell, the noise, you know, the, uh, the sheer uh, density of the stuff doesn't really strike you as well as when you're sitting there in amongst them and you say, wow, you know, it's uh, one of those life experiences that I say at the start of this. If you get a chance, you got to go. you got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what was the weather like? Um, we once we got to South Georgia, actually not bad at all. We we got some nice sunny days. We had um, we had done our research and I talked to Jeff Allen. Jeff in Britain had been he'd been one of the crew, the British crew that went around South Georgia, and Jeff's the, the, their biggest worry and our biggest worry was the the heavy catabatic winds that come across that island, and he can really roar down the glaciers and across the bays. But when we were there, we got quite settled conditions. We had good weather. We had a few, you know, rainy days, but nothing, nothing bad. And we were on the north side, um, largely. We got down to the southeast corner, down to a place called Drygalski Fjord, and that was stunningly beautiful. That area. Um, the, but we didn't get around the southern side. And one of our sort of hidden objectives was, uh, as well as seeing Shackleton's grave on in Gridviken and walking some of the. The route that those guys did after they came off the James Caird. I mean, you've just I, that story is a is amazing. And when you see what the landscape they got through, to to then walk across the island to to um, Stromness, it kind of really puts their achievements on another level for you. But they'd land that uh, they the that the James Caird came from Elephant Island, and you know they landed on the southwest corner in Kilhackenham Bay, and we had just ambitions that we might be able to just get around that far, that far. And kayak into the spot where they landed, but unfortunately that didn't happen for us. So that that was a bit of a disappointment. But yeah, um, what had happened there was a number of instances, I say, on the yachting trip, and it had limited a, a little bit. It, it put a damper on some of our ambitions because the uh, Zach had come in to meet us on the second or third day when we were on in, on the South Georgia coast uh, coastline, and it hit a rock, a submerged rock, and it was one of these uh, lifting keels, but he couldn't lift the keel any longer which stopped him getting into some of the bays we want to get into and put a bit of a damper on how far we could go. So there was instances like that happened, you know, that we had to adapt the plan as we went. So what's next? <laughs> um, what's next? I actually don't know at the moment. We had a sort of a ha half plan to try and get back to the Russian Far East and try and get out to the, the Kuril Islands and that, which would be part of the, just an extension of the Aleutian chain from the North American side, but that's all gone um, belly up, as you can as you can imagine, the war in Ukraine. So in terms of big expeditions, there's nothing big on the horizon as yet. And, um, you know, we're just back from Sardinia, so I can't complain. <laughs> there's other there's other places that are, are also of interest. Been to the Mediterranean quite a bit. You know, I've got to know some of the islands quite well there. So there's always that aspect. And then, so no big trips as yet planned. Is there one place in the world that you haven't been that you're longing to go to? 
Yeah, as I said at the start, I, I've never been to the States. and okay. Well, I've been to the States, but I've, I've never kayaked in the States. And, uh, I, you know, there's some parts of that that would attract me. But I'd need about four years to paddle in the States because <laughs> I, there's so much I want to see. So that would be one uh, kind of... Um, I'd like to go back to Greenland again. It's um, no, that's still on the, uh, on the bucket list, as they say. And ah, look, you pick up a map of the world and you say, I'd like to go there sometime. There's so much, so many things to do, you know. So I won't be short of an idea. <laughs> and this this time of the year, as you start to go more and more indoors, the brain starts to tick regarding the following summer months, etc., etc. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. So living here in the states, I think we sometimes take for granted the areas around us. What in the states is of most interest to you? Of, um, funny, all of it. Okay. <laughs> in terms of, uh, I want you know, uh, I've never done anything in the sort of that subtropical kind of paddling. Like, I'd like to go to the Everglades. You know, I want to go to the the Newfoundland coast. I want to go to the what you call it, um, Vancouver area. I want to go to uh, back of California. I want to go and see what the you know what the best of the states is such. So there's and then of course the whole Alaskan thing. So these uh um, there's loads, you know, there's a lifetime in that. So how much of those I'm going to get done, I don't know. But we'll give it a go. All right. Well, <laughs> if you find yourself here, uh, let, we'll have to connect. Yeah, yeah. And um, that'd be great. And similarly, if you make it across the, across the pond to the Emerald Isle, you're more than welcome. All right. Well, tell us about Shearwater kayaking. Yeah, Shearwater, um, that was sort of in, just in and around the same time as the whole Elon thing was kicking off. I mentioned Des, that Des Keeney was running a company called Deep Blue, who I was helping out and working with, but he was based in South Dublin. Quite a bit of a commute and difficult commute for me across the city hall and trailers, etc, etc. As part of working with Des, I used to always sort of poke a bit of fun at him and say, Des, you're not on the right side of the city yet. The north side has got far more interest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so this kind of slag, and it has, it has got more islands and it's got more, um, the, the wildlife again on the North Dublin coast is much, much richer than the South Dublin coast. So he said, yeah, yeah, go and organize this. I can't stretch myself that far. So Des was very good. He gave me a few suggestions. He says, just go and do it. I had no idea in my head at the time of forming a, a company. And we had to be away, we happened to be away in, um, I was very much involved in the Irish Sea Kayaking Association and leading trips for them in a voluntary capacity over the years. And we were away in Connemara and uh, Eileen and I sat down and said, uh, what do you think? And over a pint of Guinness, uh, Shearwater was sort of born. <laughs> and the only reason that we came up with Shearwater, Eileen liked, uh, it was my, um, from my Round Ireland trip, it was just my call sign on the VHF radio. And she says, I like that name. <laughs> and that's how the, the name that's how the name came about and i I was only sure water because they were one sometimes my only companions at sea <laughs> yeah. and a lot of those on those open water passages are the sure water so that's why the name gel so yeah we formed in 2007 uh very famous first night in june 2007 it absolutely poured rain thunderstorms and lightning and we tried to get our first crew on the water and we picked hoth as our home base so hoth's a busy busy little fishing port and town now on the in just uh, north of the city in Dublin, but it's it's nicely protected harbour, and the big headland there gives you a little bit of protection from the dominant winds in this part of the world, which are southwesterlies. So you can nearly always work there. Not always, but nearly always work there. And it grew from sort of um, largely we're a teaching outfit. We just uh, you know we we teach people how to kayak and bring them up through the various BCU Irish Irish Canoe Union standards and once. The, people become independent paddlers, we might see them on West Coast trips. So we do a combination of uh, teaching, learning, environmental courses, and then try to bring people to the West Coast of Ireland once they get to a certain standard. That's the, the formula as such. <laughs> and obviously abroad as well. We've been, we've been lucky enough to get them to people to the Mediterranean, to Scotland, quite a number of times. So. And that's a really nice part of the job I do <laughs> in terms of being able to go out and recce these situations. You know, the, the reconnaissance trips are really great in terms of you're trying to get a known area, you're trying to find accommodation, you're trying to find, put the logistics together in a, in a way that might attract people to go with you, you know. And how would people find Shearwater Kayaking? Just pu pump in anything on the, the old Google search now, John, is this, it's a... It's so accurate, you know, if anybody put in Sea Kayaking Dublin, we'd, we'd come up automatically as, a, as the main contact. All right. Well, I will make sure I put links in the show notes to, uh, to Shearwater Kayaking as well. So 
folks who are listening can go there and, and pick that information up. You, know, you had also mentioned the Irish Sea Kayaking Association. Uh, you still have involvement there? I'm not involved as I used to be. I do the occasional sort of um, leading trip and I will support the symposium efforts. That we, you know, the annual symposium I will go to and, and try and hook up with good old friends that I was very active with for a long number of years. So I'm not active in the organization any longer uh, in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of it. And it's it's been amazing. I mean, when I was involved, uh, I was um, national chairman at one stage. The kayaking fraternity was relatively small in Ireland at the time. It's grown a, a exponentially. It's fantastic to see the um, the amount of people who are now sea kayaking. So whereas one time I'd know a fair few people, nowadays it's just so many new people in it. It's just great. So that's been my only real contact now with them. And they now have got, what's, ha what's happened over the years is that the little regional subgroups have developed um, on the west coast, the south coast, north coast, and people can now hook into that. They're quite active, you know, they, they lead trips all summer. It's a great stepping stone for people to get into sea kayaking. Well, congratulations on, the, on a wonderful kayaking career so far, and we'll look forward to, uh, to hearing what's next for you in the future. Uh, thanks, John, for the opportunity. I hope I haven't rattled on too much, but as oh. I said, it'd be hard, it'd be hard to shut me up at times. Ah, <laughs> it's been wonderful. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly been a very life-enriching experience. I mean, I wasn't always a sea kayaker. I only got into it after I, after I hung up my uh, competitive um, hurling and Gaelic football and rugby boots at about age 30. I, that's when I drifted into kayaking, and uh, because it satisfied all those. I mean, was, I was a PE teacher, a geography and history teacher, and you know that natural history in interest they all gel beautifully in uh, in sea kayaking and that's what's that's what's driving me on wonderful well i've got one final question for you um, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on paddling the blue i'd love to hear robin ruddock talk to you um robin is based on the north coast and i had the privilege of staying in his house during my, my circumnavigation and, and with des in 1999 uh, would it be in early June? And I remember myself and Des being fasc so fascinated that we had Sean, we're not going to see today. And Robin looked at us and says, why are you not going to see today? Because <laughs> the weather was quite good. And we said, uh, Robin, we have to read half your library. Um, <laughs> so it's a, he was just, he, he's a man that um, I have a lot of time and respect for. He's immersed in sea things. And um, he is a very interesting character to talk to. All right. Well, I will connect with uh, connect with you and connect with Robin. I appreciate the uh, the lead. So, Sean, it's been wonderful speaking to you. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I uh, love to have the opportunity to hear about your adventures. And hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet soon. Great, John. Enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I'm certain you picked up the theme there. In addition to paddling the island that is Ireland, he's paddled to or around a significant number of Ireland's islands, plus trips to South Georgia Island, the world's largest island that is Greenland, Sakhalin, as well as many others. Sean's love of wildlife certainly shows, and I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. He really brings a great variety of expedition experience to such diverse places around the globe. Visit the show notes for this episode where you'll find links to Elan, uh, Shearwater Sea Kayaking, and a few other areas that we talked about today. Don't forget to check out OnlineSeaKayaking.com and take advantage of the great video lessons that James and Simon have put together. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next episode will feature Dan Carr, another referred guest, this time from Jonathan Hearn and Katie Sylvester. And Dan has had significant impact on the main island trail on the U.S. East Coast, and we'll talk about that trail in detail. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. 
You can subscribe to Peddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.